Our scripture text this morning is Romans 15, verses 22 through 33. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. If I were to ask you, what has been your favorite section in the book of Romans that we've studied so far, what would you answer? If you were to think through all the different passages we've worked through as a church as we get towards the end of this letter, what would you consider as one of your favorite sections? You know, I confess for me, it's probably the buildup in chapters one through three when Paul lays out that there's no one righteous before God, not the Gentile, not the Jew. And he goes to this passage in, in Romans chapter three that talks about there is no one righteous for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he gets to this place where he shows that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that he was the sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath to prove that God is both just and the justifier. That's a marvelous passage. Or maybe as you move throughout the book and you get to chapter 8, which often can be an anchor to us when you, it starts that chapter that says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many times throughout the week do you want to repeat that verse to yourself? Or maybe as it moves throughout chapter 8 and he gets towards the end and he talks about there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, those of us who are in him. Those are sweet passages to treasure. Or maybe you liked Romans 9 through 11. That talks about God's sovereign work, his plan before the foundation of the world to save us, to save his people, this mystery of election. Maybe you marveled at that. Or perhaps you benefited from chapters 12 through 14, talking about how to live out these gospel truths that were laid out in the beginning of Romans how we should um, offer our bodies as living sacrifice to the Lord, how we should obey the government in Romans 13. Or in Romans 14, maybe you've been served well by figuring out how to navigate these difficult waters of the weak and the strong Christian. Those of us who um, have our different quirks and awkwardness and social stuff that just really irks us, perhaps that's been helpful as we've thought about how to love and welcome one another. See, I, I confess that when I was assigned this passage at first, that I was, um, 
I was obviously excited, very thankful to preach, but it is not a passage that I was very familiar with. It's not one of those that makes it on a coffee mug or makes it on a t-shirt or gets a picture frame in a living room, so I wasn't super familiar with it. It wasn't those really well-known verses. It probably, for you, hasn't been a section that you consistently go back to and read over and over again, and yet, through my study, I've realized there is much to glean in this passage. You see, one of the things I love about Christ's covenant is that we have a commitment to expository preaching, which expository preaching is the act of preaching through an entire book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way to the end. Now, there's other types of preaching that you can go into. There's topical preaching where you pick different topics to preach on and you go jump from book to book and sections in book and work your way through it. And we at Christ's Covenant do that from time to time to take a break from working through a certain section in the book. But we believe one of the most healthy ways of preaching and giving you the word is through preaching through the entire book. For one reason we do that is because it's the way the author intended it. You guys don't like it when you shoot out an email to someone and they read like the first paragraph and they miss the last paragraph where you say, please respond immediately, and they just go ahead and blow it off. You want someone to read the entire email. Um, that's important. And the same with the reading of the books of the Bible. The whole thing, we want to read and understand its totality. We can't just pick and choose and move throughout. And so expository preaching forces us to move through the high marks and the low marks of the challenging passages. But one of the main reasons... We preach expository, going through verse by verse all the way throughout the book, is that when Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We genuinely believe Paul's words that all of scripture is breathed out by God. If you recall when Jesus was in the debate with the Sadducees, who were a religious group that did not believe in the resurrection, he proved to them the resurrection by stating that God, that God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is the current father of them. You place the whole argument on a being verb, not that he was, but he is. And so all of that argument of the resurrection rested on just one word. And so we believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. And so my hope is this morning you'll be encouraged as we move through this less known passage, but you'll see that it is profitable for you in God's wisdom. And so we'll move through this passage in three sections. We'll look at a missional longing that Paul has in 22 through 24. We'll see missional giving in 25 through 29, and missional praying in 30 through 33. Now, if you recall, last week in uh, Tom's sermon, we made a transition. Paul had been going through the first part of Romans, giving what we call right doctrine, teaching through the biblical truths, laying out the gospel, and then he moves in chapter 12 to how to live out this gospel. And then we walk through the different elements of what that looks like. But last week, we made a transition where Paul moves from teaching almost to a, a personal note. He starts to highlight the aim of his ministry, starts to highlight the work he's been engaged in, and that work has been to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the nations, to go out and to not stay put, but to go out to the nations. And so that's the work he's been engaged in. And if you'll look with me in 22, he says, 
This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. So, Paul lets us know that the reason he's been hindered from coming is because of his work of going to the Gentiles. He says that he longs to be in the presence of these Roman Christians. He says in the beginning of Romans 1, he lays out for them that he has, without ceasing, mentioned them in his prayers, that he has been asking God for some way by his will that he may succeed in coming to them. He has a longing to go to these Roman Christians, to be in their fellowship. He has repeated it throughout the book how he desires to be in their presence. There is a deep yearning for it. And to personally think about, when I go to church on Sundays, am I longing to go? Do you find yourself on Saturday uh, wanting to just keep on the Netflix, Netflix binge going, or do you find yourself, man, I am ready to go to church on Sunday morning? Or maybe perhaps when you go on a long vacation and you miss being here in the fellowship of the saints, do you think, man, I'm ready to go back and to be in fellowship with God's people? Do you find yourself throughout the week with a longing to be in the presence of your brothers and sisters? See, it is God's kindness to give us the church where we can gather and we can sing truths to one another. I love the fact that we don't just blast the music at full volume, but we actually keep it at a level where we can hear one another sing truths to each other. It is a blessing to me to be around you and to look at different people and to know the different stations you're at in life, the different challenges you're facing, and you to proclaim and sing, all I have is Christ. That's a reminder I need throughout the week. Or through our regular gathering when we hear the preaching of God's word, how it builds us up, how it makes us remember what we have in Christ, or the encouragement we give to one another through our love and company. Those are all gifts from the church. And Paul lays out that he has a longing to be in the presence of these Christians. He has a longing to be with them. Do we share that longing? Now, you guys this morning are of the elite when it is a torrential downpour and you're still here. You're already kind of proving you have a longing to want to be here in the fellowship of the saints. Um, you didn't open the door and say, nope, not today. You actually, you kept coming. So I am thankful for that and encouraged by that. But do you have a longing to be in the fellowship of the saints? What efforts do you place on Saturday nights to prepare yourself for Sunday? Paul has this longing for a group of believers that he doesn't even, he's never met before. He knows very few of them, and this is how he expresses his longing. But we see also that there's a reason why. In 22, he says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. And he's referencing back to his work that Tom preached on last week, that he's been taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he has been prohibited, he has been hindered from being in the fellowship of these believers because he's taking the gospel to the nations. Now, I have to think for a moment when I consider the missionaries that Christ's covenant has sent out and, be a, and is a part of with Danny and Lauren, and with Steve and Christy, and with their kids. You know, often when I think about the work they're doing, 
I often start to consider, well, it would be really hard to be a missionary. I mean, you have to eat weird food. Like there's this belief that you have to eat everything that's put in front of you. So the whole chicken's put in front of you. You got to eat the toenails and everything. I mean, you got to do it all for the sake of the gospel. Or the idea that the cultural element is, is awkward and challenging. There's isolation, the language difficulties, being able to connect with people. I mean, they don't have good sports hardly ever. I mean, and so there are challenges that are faced by the missionary, but when I think about the challenges that Danny and Lauren, Steve and Christy and their kids face, hardly ever do I think about that in their work, they have a difficult time in enjoying the presence of the saints. Because just like Paul, their work is to go to regions and to places where the gospel is not known, where the established church is not there, where they are pioneer missionaries. They are going to places where Christ has not been proclaimed, where there is not a healthy hub of Christians. And so they go and they try to invite people and engage them and make converts and have them become Christians in the faith and to trust in Christ. And then they equip them and try to train them to become leaders of a church. But for our missionaries who are sent out, they don't have what we have week in and week out to gather with a whole body over and over again. And so loneliness and isolation is a big deal to them. And it's a struggle. And it reminds me, do I consider the grace of what we have in just the regular gathering with one another? For Danny and Lauren and Steve and Christy and their kids, they don't have this grace that we have to gather every Sunday and remind each other of these truths. And it's because they are taking the gospel to the nations. One of my favorite quotes comes from a missionary named John Falconer. And I think his words absolutely capture the heartbeat of all that they have given up to go out to the nations. All of these blessings of of being around uh, the healthy church, of being out in the field and being lonely. This missionary wrote this. He said, I have but one candle of life to burn. And I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. This was the heartbeat of Paul and is the heartbeat of Danny and Lauren and Steve and Christy. That they would go to a land filled with darkness and sacrifice so much. How often I bet they long to be in our presence on Sunday and to be refreshed. Yet they've gone. And so... When we think about them, may that be what we consider. Now, Paul says in 23 that he no longer has any room for work in these regions. He's not saying that in Asia Minor, everyone has become a Christian and they're a believer and all is well and he's heading out. What he is saying, though, is that he has established churches throughout Asia Minor where there is a hub that folks can go to and be equipped. He has proclaimed the gospel throughout Asia Minor. And now... Now he is hoping to come see them. And look with me in verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, Paul has laid out for them that he desires and deeply wants to be in their fellowship. We've seen that as we've walked through this, his longing to be in their company. And yet he says, I hope to see you in passing, and then I'm just going to head on to Spain. And you're like, wait, why? Why can't he just hang out with them for a while? And, and what we see in this passage is um, not for all of us that we have to buy plane tickets to go to Spain, but what we see is a model from Paul, from Paul of having future ministry plans. 
Paul is going to be in their company. He wants to be refreshed by them, he says in 28. He wants to be encouraged by them. But he doesn't want to just stay. He doesn't want to just coast. He doesn't just want to retire. But rather, he wants to visit with them, be refreshed by them, and then go out to Spain. He has future ministry plans. Um, we don't even know with certainty if Paul actually makes it to Spain or not. We have no historical certainty on that. But nevertheless, he is planning and looking forward to the next thing he can go to. Now, if anyone had an opportunity to retire from his work in the ministry, I would contend it could be Paul. Now, if you recall in 2 Corinthians, Paul kind of describes some of the things he has went through in his ministry, and he says this when he's comparing himself to the false teachers and all that he has suffered for the gospel. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. And now Paul's going to lay out what he suffered. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That was his work. That is what he had walked through. And yet, he tells the Roman church, I've really been longing to be in your presence, but I'm not going to just stay and buy a G6 and fly around the globe and enjoy the rest of my days. Rather, I'm going to be refreshed and then I'm going to go on to Spain. I have future ministry plans. And I think it, it, it causes us a pause and challenges us. Do we currently have future ministry plans? Like, is there a goal that we are working towards with our lives to give them for the cause of Christ? Not all of us are called to go into the front lines to be a pioneer missionary. Not all of us have to go like Paul did, but we are all called and commanded to live our lives out for the glory of God, to take the gospel to those around us. If you recall, just previously in chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, Paul says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Maybe you're thinking, my... My future ministry plans, I don't, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not traveling to take the gospel or go on this mission trip. We have just in the past chapter, Paul laying out, let this be a future ministry plan to welcome one another, to bring harmony and peace within the church. You can live out future ministry plans even within the context of this body through loving one another. So I ask you, is there a coasting that's going on? Have you thought of, man, I have, I've served in this Bible study for 10 years, now it's time to just coast for the next five? Or are you finding yourself planning, who am I going to engage with next? What service am I going to do next? 
I think Paul lays out for us that he sees his life is one to give for the cause of Christ. He will get his reward when he sees Christ, when his faith is made sight. And so for us, what's our future ministry plans? There's a season of rest, and Paul models that for us. There's a season of resting at the church and to be refreshed. But then there is a going and a future ministry plan. And so what is ours? So, we see with Paul that he has a missional longing, a longing to be in the fellowship of the believers, and then a longing to go, a longing to move to the next thing. Look with me that he has now missional giving in mind. In verse 24, towards the end, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and then he says this, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He also says in 28, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And so we see that Paul is planning on, not only is he going to go spend time with the Romans, but he's also planning on them being able to be a support of him to go to Spain. He is banking on that. This is a letter that to Christians, like I said, that he is not known, that he um, barely has interaction with. He is laying out the gospel. And then he also, when he comes to them, there is this idea implicitly there that they will be a part of supporting him and sending him. And so in 25 through 29, we see a model of giving towards missions, a model of missional giving. Paul is, Paul is setting up the stage for them to support him. And this is a model that we see throughout the New Testament of Paul going from church to church and being sent out by them. Now, when we think about missional giving, not all of us can go overseas, but all of us can play a part in giving. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the story of William Carey, who was a missionary in the 18th century. Um, William Carey, uh, he lived in 17, excuse me, in 1792, he published a book uh, that the title might be longer than the book, but just hear, hear me out here. This was the title, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the heathens. You see, William Carey is what we often call the father of modern missions. William Carey lived in a time where folks believed the church overall, the normal, the, the, uh, the mass of the Christian population that he was surrounded in, did not believe that Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus' words to go and make disciples of all nations, actually had application in their own life and time, but rather that was a command to the apostles. And William Carey comes along and says, no, that is a command for the church for all ages, that we are to go and to take the gospel. And so William Carey had this burning desire. He was traveling and preaching and showing that we must go cross-culturally. We must go to places where Christ has not been proclaimed. Look at the life of Paul. And so he makes these travels. And in 1792, after he wrote this, a year later in 17. Um, 93, he goes to India and will serve there for 41 years to try to take the gospel to the Indian people. But he realized that this could not be done on his own effort. And so in 1792, he created a society with the help of other brothers in Christ called the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. And one of the main guys who was partnering with him during that time was a guy by the name of Andrew Fuller. 
Andrew Fuller was a pastor who grew up um, in this same context as William Carey, who was around other pastors who was doubting that Matthew 28 had any implication on their life, that they could just rather live out the Christian faith there and die and go to glory. They don't need to take the gospel out. God will save whomever he will save. Andrew Fuller, in his work with William Carey, was convinced that no, the gospel must go out to the nations. And there's this famous line that I'm building towards here. If you're thinking, where in the world is he going? This is what I'm building towards. There's this famous line that, that William Carey says to Andrew Fuller before Carey leaves, before Carey goes to India and to serve. He says this to Andrew Fuller. I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. And so Andrew Fuller was pastoring full-time, but at the same time, he led this convention that started in 1792 to travel around and to raise funds for the work of the missionaries. He would preach on the texts that highlight the uh, going out to the nations. He would ask for money. He would solicit funds throughout the countryside, all in hopes of being able to support William Carey and others like him so that once they're on the field... They don't have to worry about their funds stopping. They don't have to worry about sending letters back for fundraising. They could just focus on the task at hand. And my goodness, why would that not be a good thing? Of all the stuff that William Carey was facing, languages, witnessing to a culture he's unfamiliar with, the last thing he needs to think about is raising money. And we see here in this passage with Paul that he is expecting not the whole Roman church to go with him to Spain. He's not asking for all of them to get their passports and to go with him to Spain. Rather, their job in the mission, their job is that they are going to be a part of supporting him. They are going to send him on his way. At Christ Covenant Church, we are in fellowship and cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Southern Baptist Convention has one of the most um, amazing models of supporting missionaries, where all Southern Baptist churches give to one big pot called the Cooperative Program that then goes to fund missionaries through the International Mission Board. The International Mission Board has over 3,600 missionaries across the globe serving to take the gospel to those who do not know Christ, and they do it fully funded fully funded because there is a cooperation with all the churches united around the idea that Christ must be proclaimed to all people, that Christ has come to purchase a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so all of this money is pulled together to support these 3,600 missionaries. And it's a beautiful model. It allows small churches who can never fund a full-time missionary to play a part in the mission. It allows churches like us to fund Danny and Lauren, but also to still be a part of funding Stephen Christie through Pioneers. It allows us to be a part of a great effort and work united around missions. And so we see in this part here that Paul is going to be, and he's planning on, being supported by the church. It's a model that we see throughout Scripture, and it's a model that Christ's covenant we practice to support our missionaries because not all of us can go, but we can hold the ropes while they go into the pit. Now, we see that they are going to support Paul to send him on his mission, but there's also a second picture of missional giving, and this one um, we can miss if we don't read it carefully. Look with me in verse 25. 
He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. And you got to think, he is just totally messing with their emotions. He's talked about how much he's longed to be with them, how he has desired to be in their presence, but he was held up because he was taken to the gospel to the nations. You're like, okay, Paul, that, that's good. Now you're finally going to come to us. And then all of a sudden, he switches in 25 and says, actually, I'm not coming to you yet. i got to go to Jerusalem. And you're thinking, what in the world could be so important that he would go to Jerusalem? Jerusalem. But he says he, he has to go to Jerusalem um, and bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, Paul has spent the past year going around the churches in Asia Minor, collecting funds for this gift that will be given to the Christians in Jerusalem, predominantly Jewish. Now, I confess that when I read this at first and I see that he's going to Jerusalem, I have usually positive thoughts about that. Partially because of my Old Testament reading that Jerusalem is the city that God placed his throne, that is the city where David built the temple. You know, you have positive connotations when you think about Jerusalem. But the, the challenge is, is when Paul's saying that he's going to Jerusalem, when we read that, we should immediately think this is not good. This is a problem because Jerusalem in our context would be like someone saying, I'm going to Pakistan as a Christian. I'm going to North Korea as a Christian. That's probably a little bit extreme. But what I'm getting at is the idea that it was not safe for Paul to go there, that there was intense persecution. If you recall, it was at Jerusalem. We have the first account of a martyr with Stephen being stoned to death. Jerusalem was not a safe place for the church. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to bring a gift to the poor saints, to those who are the believers, but yet they are destitute. That word for poor is the same word that's used in James 2, talking about not show partiality to the rich man who's dressed in nice clothes, who has a gold ring. Do not show partiality to him over the poor man in ragged clothes. It's the same word there. And so when he's describing the situation of these believers in Jerusalem, predominantly Jewish believers, it's clear that they are suffering. They are facing persecution financially, socially, and even for their own uh, health, uh, their own safety, they're facing challenges. And so Paul is saying, I have been raising up this gift, this fund, to take to them. Now, He's been doing it throughout Asia Minor, Asia, Asia Minor. Wow. And in verse 27, look at what he says. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. And so twice in these verses, Paul talks about how the Gentiles, predominantly Gentiles throughout Asia Minor, were the ones who were giving financially to this cause. Paul's going around, he's not saying, hey, I'm raising money for this special project. He's telling them, we are going to raise money and we are going to take it to give a gift to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And it says that these Gentiles, those who have nothing in common with the Jews, they are financially giving and they are supporting and it pleases them to do it that it's a joy for them, that they are happy to be a part of this work. But then Paul also says that they ought to do it, that it's their duty to do it. And so we think about it for a moment with our own giving, particularly towards missions or, or towards the church or towards supporting some organization. It's like, well, 
am I pleased to do it or do I do it out of the obligation? Is that a contradiction? Like I ought to do it, but I'm still supposed to be pleased to do it? And I think Paul is wedding those two things together and showing that they work like two sides of a coin, that you ought to give. It's your responsibility to give and to support these brothers and sisters. But at the same time, it should bring you joy. Giving without joy is vain. Now, Paul gives the reason, the why, for why they should do this. And we see that he says in verse 27, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in their material blessings. That's the reason why they should give. Because the Gentiles now share in the spiritual blessings of the Jews. And I know sometimes this language becomes challenging because it's like Gentiles, okay, that's the nations of that. So they're, they're supposed to give because they share in the spiritual blessings. What's a big deal about that? Well, the Gentiles and Jews had nothing in common. They didn't share the same traditions, the same cultures, the same beliefs. It was the pagans and the religious folks. Remember Paul in Romans chapter 3 talks about that the Jews were the ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the ones who were entrusted with the promises of God. They were to be the caretakers of God's promise. And if, the, and if they were to faithfully walk out his promises, then theirs would be the kingdom. But yet we know throughout the Old Testament that even this initial promise God had in mind, not just the Jews, but when he told Abraham that through his seed, through his line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God had in his plan already that he would save not just the Jews, but that he would save all the nations, that he would not be bound to a certain ethnicity or to a certain group, but rather he would save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so What Paul is doing here in raising funds for this gift, he's motivating them and reminding the Gentiles that you share now in the full spiritual blessings that were promised to Abraham. You share in all that God has promised in the Old Testament. That is yours now. So why would you not give to them in material blessing? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. But Hear me in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul lays out uh, this picture quite clearly when he talks about the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile. He says this to the Gentiles, reminding them of their inheritance of the spiritual blessing. Hear what he says. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, which that's slang for those who are not of the promise, not of God's people. You who were once called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, which is made by, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace 
and might reconcile us both, that's Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jews and Gentiles had nothing in common. Rather, they had hostility. One was the crazy pagans, and one was those who was trying to faithfully follow God's law. There would have been animosity and hostility, and yet, because of the gospel, because now the Gentiles share in the spiritual blessings, Paul lays out quite clearly in Ephesians 2 that they have been made one man through the work of Christ. That this gospel now motivates these Gentiles to give and to give to the, to the Jewish Christians. And this is a picture of the gospel. This is what we long for. This is the beauty of what we worship and give praises to Christ, is that through him, those of us who were once strangers to God, without hope and without promise, he has bought us by his blood. And that buying us by his blood, that reality of his sacrifice on our behalf, is what motivates us to want to give and to share. It is what motivated these Gentile believers to say, we are now one in Christ with you and we are going to give to you. And it was a beautiful picture of the gospel that would have absolutely befuddled all those in Jerusalem. Marvel with me for a moment this picture of the gospel that you have Paul bringing a financial gift to support the poor Christians in Jerusalem by the Gentiles. If you're an unbeliever here and you're thinking, I, have, I am far away from God, there is nothing God can do with me, I have sinned too much, there is no hope for me, remember that Paul was once called Saul, that, Paul, that Saul was a persecutor of the Christian church, that it was Saul when he was in Jerusalem stood there while Stephen was being stoned to death and held the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. And now so many years later in God's salvation, in God's economy, in, in this befuddling picture of unity and grace, Paul, who, Saul who gets converted into Paul, and now he's raised funds, he's going to come back to Jerusalem and is going to give a gift to some of those he was persecuting, to the church in Jerusalem on behalf of the Gentiles who had no relationship with these people. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It is one thing to say that we care for one another, but when it comes to financially supporting those who you've never even seen or know, it shows that you care. And so it is a beautiful picture of the gospel and of missional giving. Finally, in verses 30 through 33, we see a model of missional praying. So for some of us, we're wrestling with, well, I, I feel this obligation. I want to give. I enjoy giving. But I'm going to be honest. I have the widow's might. Uh, it's not really impacting too much. Maybe I can buy ramen noodles for missionaries for a week, but that's about all I can do. Uh, it takes the widow's might, and it takes the wealthy to be a part of this mission endeavor, to give to support this work, to support those who are going out, or to do the kind thing of supporting those of us who are falling into hard times or who are the poor among us and who need an extra boost. But we also see that we all can participate. And Paul lays out that there is a prayer, there is a missional praying that can occur. 
Look with me in verse 30. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, Paul is appealing to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we can grow so numb to titles sometimes in Scripture. But Paul is saying, I'm appealing to you to the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, the one who is, we know from Colossians, who sits at the right hand of God, through him, by him, all things are created. He upholds all things with the word of his power. That Lord, the one who reigns over all, who defeated death, I'm appealing to him. I'm asking you to appeal to him. And he says also by the love of the Spirit. And I think what he means there is this love for someone other than yourself, the love for others, and particularly the love for Paul, a missionary who's about to go out, who's about to give this gift. And he says, offer this prayer to God on my behalf. This is a picture of the Trinity. I'm appealing to the Son through the Spirit, and these prayers are going to go to the Father who reigns over all. And what is Paul asking for? What is the specific thing he's requesting? In verse 31, he says that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So we see that Paul has a very specific request, that he would have protection and that he would also have an acceptable ministry, acceptable service when he goes to the saints in Jerusalem. Remember, they know his old life. There are some who still don't believe that he has actually changed. And so there's hesitation, there's fear. Will they trust him? Will they welcome him? And then also prayer for protection. Prayer is challenging. But we can participate in the missional work of Paul through prayer. Now, prayer is challenging because I think... Um, often when we're sitting and praying, we feel as if nothing happens. I mean, when I pray for a new car, I don't open my eyes and it's there. When I pray for hair, I don't open my eyes and it's there. It doesn't work that way. There's no like quick, there's no poof and all of a sudden it's there. Often it never works that way for us. And yet Paul is asking these Roman Christians to pray for his safety when he goes to Jerusalem. Now we have to ask, were those prayers, did they happen? When Paul requests for them to strive with him, to labor with him, he's recognizing prayer is not easy because you don't see what happens. But if you recall, in Acts 21 through 23, when Paul heads to Jerusalem, when he gets there, he's welcomed, he's accepted, he's loved by the saints. But also when he goes to the temple, he's immediately surrounded by Jewish leaders and they start beating him. And now, this could have happened where he's beaten to death right then and there, but all of a sudden we read in Acts that word was given to the tribune who all of a sudden sends Roman soldiers who come and capture Paul and bring him to safety. They put him in custody and they say, what's going on? The Roman Christians would not have heard of that. There wasn't live television that time. There wasn't an ABC News update. They don't know if their prayers were being heard, but you have to imagine they were striving in prayer and providentially, God works that the Roman soldiers came in time before Paul's even beaten to death. Are you thinking, okay, that, that's helpful. But, but when Paul was arrested, think about this. When he was arrested and he was going to be uh, sent on and they're trying to figure out what's going on with him, the Jews gathered together, the religious leaders, and 40 of them put together a plot that they would not eat or drink until they see the assassination of Paul, until he is killed. And while they're planning this and plotting this against Paul, it just so happens by chance, no, not by chance, but providentially in God's kindness, 
that Paul's own nephew overheard this plan. And when he overheard it, he went to the tribune, who the Roman general, the Roman soldier, who was reigning over these thousand troops, who could have just blown this kid off saying, you're making things up, you're trying to get this for an advantage. But no, he actually listened to him, and they took Paul through the cover of night with extra protection and for his safety. Paul was spared. We may not know all of the effects that our prayers have, but we do know that we are appealed to to pray for our missionaries, to pray for their protection, to pray that their ministry would be acceptable because God reigns over it all. And although we may not get a day-by-day text message from our missionaries, our prayers are being used by God to protect them. And so we see even in this example of Paul's life that the Roman church did not know what all was happening, but you have to believe that they entered into these prayers on Paul's behalf for his protection. And he says that he hopes for all of this will happen so he can come to them and be refreshed in their company. And he ends in verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all, amen. And so Paul will go to their presence, he will go to Rome, but he'll go in chains. He will be in their company, but he'll be in chains. But he reminds them that the God of peace will be with them. And so it is this idea that God is our peace, that he has rescued us through Christ, that he has reconciled us to him and to one another that motivates us to go. It makes no sense to the watching world why we would get here on a Sunday morning when it is raining and there are other things we can do, that we would come and sing praises and we would read a book that shows and demonstrates the life of someone who lived 2,000 years ago. It makes no sense to the watching world unless we believe Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and that he has forgiven us of our sins, that we were once strangers, we were once lost, but he has purchased us and changed us. And now we want to be a part of this mission through our gathering together, through our giving for the work, and then for our praying together. So I would encourage you, let's take just a moment and consider your own life How are you living to advance the gospel? And then I'll pray for us.